save us, you're with us to the end, Lord. We just cry out hallelujah. We, we thank you, Lord. You are victorious. You are righteous. You prepare our hearts. You cause seas to grow. Your word is right. It's different than us. It's different than how we think. We need to put you on, Lord, this morning. Lord, we need to take in what you have for us. And so I just ask for accuracy. I ask for your Holy Spirit to be working in us. I ask God that you would cause um, unregenerate hearts to become regenerate. I ask that you would make us like you. We lay down our lives before you. We ask that you would receive all that goes on here this morning with praise and worship. May it it be something that is pleasing to you. Thank you so much for who you are and what you've done for us. In your name, amen. Please be seated. Happy Mother's Day. I'm my mom's first present for Mother's Day. I know, we only had up to go. Could only get better after that. We'll revisit that. So, um, this morning, we're going to pick up from where we left off last week. I know that's a big surprise because that's what we do every Sunday. (laughs) But uh, because we're going through the book of Matthew. So, this morning though, so we can get the context because it's kind of the same flow of what's going on. We're going to begin with reading the scripture from last week. And then we're going to continue on through scripture this week. So, if you have your Bibles and you would like to. Please turn to Matthew 16, we'll start at verse 13, and then read all the way through 28. Matthew 16, 13 through 28. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And whatever you in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was a Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 
For the Son of Man is coming, is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. So last week, we learned that God revealed to the disciples that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the promised one. And then He told them that He is going to build the church. Christ is going to build His church. And we continue this Sunday, and God rolls out the blueprints for His plans. And it goes something like this. Jesus is the foreman. And the foreman is going to suffer and die. And he has to do that or else we're not going to have any nails to hold together the structure of the building that we're building in the church. And then all the people that are working on the church have been gathered from all of time, from all tribes and different nations throughout time. And they're working. And God is using them to build His church. And He's called some of them to die. Others are going to go through a lot of tribulation. They're going to go through a lot of suffering. Others aren't going to go through as much. Then there's going to be some that are still around and they're, they're, they're doing the finishing touches on the church, painting it, making it look nice. And once Jesus says, it's time, the church is finished, all those that have worked on the church throughout time are going to be able to come and enjoy what Jesus made. It's going to be a joyful time. We're not going to, we, we can't even imagine how wonderful the church is going to look. Now, I'm assuming, I know there are some people out here that have done contracting in some building and stuff like that. I work with some of you. You guys don't work with me anymore because of that. But you know, you know how to build things. And obviously, you don't build buildings um, by having your workers suffer and die. Well, I don't think so. I haven't, haven't received any of those reports yet. But that would make sense because you were man and you think like a man does. You do things like men do. And God is God and He does things like God does. His plans are different than ours. God's blueprints are the master plan. They're the best plan. And it goes against all worldly logic. It goes against all expectations that the disciples had. We're going to spend a good amount of time this morning seeing what it really means to follow Jesus. What it really means to follow the footsteps of Jesus. What He has called us to do in order to build His church. And He paints a completely different picture than what the disciples had, expect, had expected. And it's probably a much different picture than the way most of us live our lives, which is sad because this passage that we read this morning is one that we all know probably pretty well. Um, a lot of us probably have it memorized in parts, but we're not really living how God has called us to live. We have victories at times, but by and large, this is, this is a big calling. Jesus is God and we are man. That's where we begin this morning, with the acknowledgement that Jesus is divine. He is the Messiah. 
And he made this really clear during Peter's confession that we went over last week. And I want to highlight something real quick going back to that. When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, and your Father is in heaven. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He's just calling Peter. Blessed are you, Peter. You figure this out. No, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Or, blessed are you, Simon, son of a human man who lives on earth and is not, does not have a father in heaven like I have a father in heaven. You're right. I am the Messiah. And I am completely different than you. You can trust me. I am Jesus. So once we come to the same conclusion that the disciples did, that Jesus is Lord, we accept Him in our hearts. Now once that the disciples had taken on that same truth, they were ready for a little bit more information. We're moving on to the next chapter, Matthew 16, 21. From that time... Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. From that time on, from the time that they said, yes, you are the Christ, we've identified that because your Father gave us the ability to do that. That was when. That was the time. And we can get great comfort as you... You see, it, it, it had to happen this way. It had to happen when God said it was the right time. We kind of think back to like Ephesians chapter 3 where it talks about the manifold wisdom of God being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I get kind of a picture like this. All these angels sitting in a theater watching a movie of Jesus and all of creation and watching how He's building His church. Do you realize that? Do you realize we all know Jesus has victory. We all know that He wins in the end. That's what the, the angels know that too. Satan knows that. Everyone knows that. That's, that's, that's known. We don't know how it's all going to unfold. We don't know when exactly everything's going to happen. But Jesus does. Jesus has the exact time down. It's as if they're just watching them. How is this going to happen? They're, they're, we just sit there in awe and magnificence. And Jesus says, now's the time. You realize Jesus is the one that said to them, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It was the right time. And then from that time on, it says Jesus began. This is a process that they're going through. This isn't something that, let me just tell you this, I am the Messiah, you're right, and I am going to suffer and die and build my church through that and through you guys. And they were just like, yes, I got it. It's good. No, this is a process. He had to begin to teach him them these things. Just like it is a process for us to learn these things. 
Conquering evil through suffering was something that the disciples would better understand at a later time. But let's be honest, like even those of us that have the Holy Spirit working in us, even on this side of everything, have trouble understanding how all of this works out. That's why we come here every Sunday and we hear these messages over and over again so that we can learn. What is it that you mean? What, how are you doing this? How, are, how is my suffering that I'm going through building your church? How is that loving, God? They just didn't understand must. Jesus says he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, and die. The disciples understood that there needed to be sacrifices. That was something that was going on, right? You killed animals. Blood had to be shed when you sinned to atone for sin. But we know in Hebrews 9 and 10 that that doesn't suffice. It explains it in there. Why? Because we keep on sinning. We can sin and go and kill an animal, shed the blood in atonement for our sin because we've done something wrong, but we're going to sin again and again and again and again and again. The, the blood of the animals is not going to atone for past, present, and future sins. Only the blood of 100% perfect, holy, 100% God, 100% man blood can suffice for our past, present, and future sins. Only the blood of Jesus is going to be able to atone for what we have done. That's why Jesus must die because he because if he doesn't die, then we have to pay the penalty for our sin. We have to die. This is definitely a concept that the disciples did not understand and we get that clearly by Peter's response. Look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Can you imagine? Just a few verses earlier, he made this triumphal uh, confession that he's the Christ. And and, then Jesus says, you're a rock. You are the rock and I'm going to build my church uh, through you. And then a few verses later, the rock begins to crumble. And I'm trying to imagine, how did this go down? They're walking side by side. Peter goes and opens up his hands and he places them on the side of Jesus' shoulders. Far be it from you, Lord. May this never happen to you. He rebukes Jesus. Peter? And we've got to understand this is a different rebuke. This isn't, this isn't an authoritative rebuke like Peter thinks that he has the authority over Jesus to do this. This is a friendly rebuke. This is a, Jesus, I care about you. I don't want to see you suffer and die. I'm your friend. I'm going to shield you, Jesus. I'm going to come around you and I'm going to, I'm going to cover you. I'm going to shield you from all of this evil that you're talking about. May it never be. May it never be. The commentators say that this translation would also work for uh, Peter's response. Grace is yours, Lord. May this never happen to you. Does that sound familiar at all? The tone? 
grace is yours, Lord. May this never happen to you. That, that's not a quote anywhere else in the Bible. But if we go back to Jesus' temptation in the desert, in chapter 4, and we go to the second temptation, Satan approaches Jesus says this. says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Basically, Satan's saying to him, Look, you're the Son of God. Jesus, God, God is never going to allow anything bad to happen to you. That's really similar to what Peter's saying right here. He's telling him, Far be it from you, Jesus, God's grace will save you. Satan departed in chapter 4, and he came along and was a little slithery snake all throughout the rest of the chapter, but he came back right here in chapter 16 at a pivotal moment through Peter. Peter cites God's grace as a way out of dying when in fact, grace is the very reason His Father wills that He die because He is gracious to us. See how Satan twists this stuff? Jesus doesn't delay in addressing this evil. Verse 23, But Jesus, But He turned and said to Peter, Get behind Me, Satan! This is a different kind of rebuke. Okay? This is we can we can we can imagine it like this. They're walking, it says Jesus turn. Jesus turn. We can look at it, it's, it's a pivot. He, he it's a complete turn. Everything froze. Nothing else mattered at that moment. Jesus was going to address this evil that was taking place. Get behind me, Satan. And he puts Peter and Satan right where they're supposed to be, behind him. Right where we're supposed to be also. We're supposed to be behind Jesus, following Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. At that moment, he addressed Peter as Satan, and Peter, Peter didn't become Satan. Okay? He didn't all of a sudden not become Peter and become Satan. But he was being used as a mouthpiece by Satan to try to deter Jesus from following his Father's will. Jesus is merciful and patient. But at certain moments, He displays His great power as a lion. And He roars against evil. When I was thinking about this, I thought of the Chronicles of Narnia. The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know what I'm talking about? You already know the scene. Yeah, yeah, everyone's heads are nodding. I'm probably going to say it wrong. I don't think you all know it. Aslan meets in the tent with the evil witch the evil queen, and they're making a deal. They're talking. And at the end of everything, you remember what she says to him? She says to Aslan, how do I know you'll keep your word? Those loving eyes, gentle nature of Aslan, completely changed into this ferocious lion. And all she did was roar back. And you could see the evil witch's hair blowing in the back and her look of fear on her face. As if to say, how dare you question whether or not I'm going to keep my word. 
And if we would apply it to our passage right here, it says, how dare you tempt me? Get behind me, Satan. You don't mess with Jesus. God puts up with a lot from us. But don't ever question His character or tempt Him. We may wonder if uh, Peter missed the second half of what Jesus had already said to him, right? Jesus told him, he's got to go to Jerusalem, suffer and die, and in three days be raised. Peter missed that? He he said he's going to conquer death right there. We know that there's just so much going on in front of Peter right now in the the middle of the moment. I mean, he he, he didn't expect the Savior to come as a baby, <laughs> turn upside down, everyone's thinking the way it was, and then now, not only did he find out, yes, this is, this is, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah, he's going to build his church, and then he turns around and tells me the way he's going to do it is suffer and die. I'm pretty sure he was caught up in, in trying to understand what was going on here, but in being caught up with the first part of what Jesus told him, he missed the big picture. So easy for us to do that. We, we can get caught up in little moments of what's going on in our life and we can miss, miss the big picture, miss God's plan. What's His plan for us? Je- Jesus identified Peter's problem at the end of verse 23. For you, Peter, are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There it is, that distinction again. God thinks this way. We think this way. We're in opposition. We need to put, put off ourselves and put on Jesus. Put on His way of thinking. Peter was probably focused all of his thinking on the suffering and the murder and the fact that he, he loved Jesus and didn't want to see him go through that. We've got to say, who wouldn't want to shield a loved one from suffering and death? Who wouldn't want that? We understand that. Peter's intentions were admirable in a human sense, but evil in the heavenly sense. Evil because Peter's intentions were in opposition with God's will. God's will is always right. It's always loving, which means anything that doesn't agree with God's will is evil. Though Peter had every intent of doing right, he in fact was accomplishing the opposite. This is sober warning to all of us because we know Peter's a Christian, still a Christian. He was a leader, he was close to Jesus, he was the rock. What does it say to us as uh, Christians, as Christian leaders, pastors, elders? We need to evaluate whether our intentions and our actions agree with Scripture. If they don't, then ultimately the advice we're giving, the things that we're doing are going to go against what we ultimately want. We ultimately want something good to happen. We want to help people. We want, we want our, our intentions, even if we think they're good, could be completely wrong. 
And if we follow them and they're not in accord with Scripture, we're going to reap that which is bad, that which we don't like. Be careful not to just give advice from your own convictions because they may be evil. Remember also, not all suffering is bad. Not all suffering is meant to be avoided. You imagine, what if you had a 20-year-old daughter, beautiful daughter, you love her, you would never want anything bad to happen to her. And she comes up to you and says, I found the right guy. He's a Christian guy. He's in love with the Lord and he is called into the mission field to Iran. What's your advice? What's your, what's your response? It would be hard. Remember that those whom you may love the most were created by God and He loves them more than you ever could. He's got a calling for each one of us which could entail suffering and death. This was something that I, I had to think about a lot when James was born because uh, we were in the hospital, of course. Well, it didn't have to be, of course. And we had emergency cesarean. And so I'm in the hallway and I'm watching Naomi get rushed out of this room, going down the aisle or the hallway, and then going into this room. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay. And I remember I, I'm thinking in my mind, like I'm trying to prepare myself. I'm, I'm hoping for the best, of course. I don't know, you know, is everything going to be okay with Naomi? Is everything going to be okay with, with James? And I remember. God's character. God is loving. God is in control. God's not surprised. He knew that it wasn't going to happen this way, the, the way we planned. He knew this was going to have to happen. Um, he made James. He designed him exactly how he wanted to. It was his child first, mine second. It was a gift to us. He was a gift to us. He it. And so I had to say, God, whatever your will is. And it's not just like something that we just take lightly. That, that, that is the truth. That is the truth. He knows best. He knows best. God is loving and sovereign. He hasn't called us to experience any temptations or suffering that He hasn't endured Himself. He is the ultimate leader who leads by example. And He's patiently giving us the grace we need to walk in His footsteps. Which is exactly what we've been called to do. Like our suffering Savior, Jesus has called us to suffer. That through our suffering, He might build His church. Verse 24. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Can you imagine the disciples' faces now? We've got, I've said this over and over again, but it was huge that they acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. Now I know it says God the Father is the one that revealed it to them, so it was going to happen. 
But Jesus wasn't the picture of the Messiah in their minds. They definitely didn't think he was going to die. And now, now Jesus is sitting there looking at him and saying, yeah, I'm the Messiah. Cast all your hope, your trust in me. I'm going to suffer and die. And now you, you are going to follow me and you too are going to go through suffering and could even die. There's a lot to take in. You too must deny yourself all the way to the point of your own death if need be. If you're going to follow me. You have to deny yourself. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to deny ourselves. If you're going to be little Christ, it's where Christians are. If we're going to be Christians, then we have to be like Christ and not like man. Man's ways lead to destruction and God's ways lead to life. Lose yourself, gain life. We like the end goal here. We want life. Yes, I want life. But through suffering and death, why? 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 Why do we need to do it through death and suffering? Because if we don't deny ourselves, then what's the opposite? We exalt ourselves. We worship ourselves instead of our Creator. And we don't want that. It's not good. Every time you put your, yourself first instead of someone else or instead of putting God first, it doesn't end up feeling good. It might for just a second, but then it's horrible. In, in that good little bit of time where it feels good, that's a false good. <laughs> that's not a good good. It is all bad. This is how Alan talks. I'm very simple. It's bad. So, okay. If you have five-year-olds here, everyone will be like, yeah, okay, I get it. Talking about five-year-olds here. So, picture yourself as a five-year-old <laughs> in kindergarten, and the teacher brings out a five-gallon bucket of candy and dumps out that bucket of candy right in the middle of the room and then says, dive in. Yeah. So, you dive in after that candy and you're able to fend all of your friends off, even the ones you don't like, the good ones, everyone. You fend them all off and you get all that candy for yourself. That's the good feeling. Then you eat all the candy. It's good feeling for a second. Then you get a tummy ache, really bad. You don't have any friends. Everybody hates you after that. And you got a lot of cavities. And they're going to get worse. Yep. Exalting ourselves is like cancer or a really bad cavity that gets worse and worse and eventually kills us. But we want to put ourselves first. We know ourselves really well, right? Well, in a sense. In a sense, we don't. We don't understand. We're deceived. But we know how we feel. We know what we're feeling all the time. We know what we want all the time. We can't get away from those things. We dream about those things. I picture our evil desires kind of like the walking dead. I don't usually use analogies or illustrations like this in church. It's an evil show, right? I've never seen it. <laughs> 
I hate it. Whenever I look at it, I'm like, who would want to watch that? But it's crazy. Everybody loves zombies these days. What are these kids? They come home and they talk about zombies. Would you play over? Yeah, I went over to my friend's house. We play video games. Would you play? Well, there's these zombies. We kill them. Why? Don't play that stuff. It's garbage. It's satanic. I have Christian friends who I really admire, and I know some of them do it, so I don't really understand, but whatever the case may be. This is a great illustration. Okay, let's follow it. I was in with Naomi uh, at Universal Studios last November, and they have this exhibit for The Walking Dead. I didn't want to go in this thing, but everyone in my group wanted to go, so I was like a sheep. I just followed, yeah. So we all went through the exhibit, and by the time we were done, I was really excited that I went through the exhibit. Why? Because I have an illustration for you this morning. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going through there. And there's all these like really good actors and actresses, and they look horrible. They're they're very evil. They they look at you and they're, they're just like they're zombies. They 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 scare you. And so they have like one goal. They want to find people that are alive and get hold of you and kill you. And people watch this stuff. And they didn't ever seem to be satisfied to me. They always just wanted to kill more and more people. They were heartless. It was a perfect illustration of an unregenerate heart. They're always seeking, but never getting satisfaction. Now, I know I I did not take the time to interview any of those actors at all. So I could be wrong. Maybe some of them were getting some satisfaction out of it. Um, but I don't think so. I don't think any of them were satisfied by the looks on their face. Um, but the Bible says that that's what our heart is like without Christ. The Bible says our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can understand them? That should scare you. Picture not knowing Christ, the inside your heart being a zombie. Bad. Go away from it. Romans 7.18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. can't do it without Christ. It's impossible. Who wouldn't want to get rid of the evil inside of us? We have to deny ourself. And denying self is a good thing. Think of that. Deny. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to do exactly the opposite of what my evil desires want me to do. Yes! I'm going to deny myself. Good. It's a good thing. We should get behind Jesus. Cast all of our burdens and our cares upon Him and He's going to lead us um, by green pastures and by still waters. Two green pastures and by still waters. So, if we follow our own desires, we exalt ourselves, ultimately what we're looking for is that satisfaction, right? We, we want to be satisfied inside. But we've painted that as a picture of that's evil, wrong. We're never going to be satisfied. So the opposite is if we're worshiping God, we're going to receive satisfaction. And so I stole these two illustrations from John Piper. Okay, so this is what it's like to worship God. It's like going to... The Grand Canyon. You go to the Grand Canyon and you look at it. You look at that big, vast beauty. And you sit there in awe 
God is big. God's beautiful. He made that. And God knows that you're attributing all of that majesty and glory to Him. And He's receiving glory. And you're receiving enjoyment and satisfaction. Or we could look at it as you go to someone's house and they've prepared this wonderful meal. And you go and you eat that meal. It's so good. Well, the person that labored over that meal, the way they're going to receive thanks is by seeing how much people are enjoying the meal that they made. And when you get seconds and you want more and more and more of it, you're just saying, you're good. You're good at cooking. You look at Jesus and say, I've tasted your grace. I want more. Every time I deny myself and you're coming in more, and it's changing me. I just want more and more of you. And he gets the glory, and we get the satisfaction. John Piper always says this in his God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. It's good. It's good. So to deny self begins with accepting Jesus as the Messiah and worshiping him over self. Denial of self means increasing and um, decreasing in who we are and increasing in who Christ is. The world and our hearts are in competition with Christ. So the question for us is, where is our allegiance? Where is your allegiance this morning? With Christ or with the world? So this is where our suffering comes from. If, if our allegiance is with God and we're denying ourselves, this is going to incur suffering. We're actively in our minds saying we want to deny self and when you want to deny self, that means we are going to go through suffering because it's in opposition with the world. We're making a conscious decision. I want that. I want Christ. Our passage says, if anyone would come after me, this is Jesus talking, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In the book of Luke, it says daily. Every day we are to take up our cross and follow Jesus. You realize the disciples at this time, they didn't know that the way that Jesus was going to be killed was through crucifixion. But they knew what crucifixion was. I mean, more than likely, they had seen many, many crucifixions. They had walked by, seen people up on the crosses. Um, they, they knew what it was like as far as seeing it. They had witnessed people walking to their death, walking that road of shame, carrying that, that big beam on their backs. It was a public display. Everybody knew what was coming next for that person. It was shameful. It was meant to be humiliating and eventually caused suffering and death. That's our picture of how the world should see us as Christians. Publicly displayed. They should be able to look at you 
and look at me and know you're a Christian. It's a public display. It's a huge burden. Because you're going to get blowback from everyone. People aren't going to like you. But it should be noticed. And in our world, especially the way we are, we, we, want, to, we want to enjoy Jesus. We want to take Jesus and enjoy worship, enjoy our fellowship together. But we don't want to go through that different kind of suffering. So we, we have stuff like, you know, let's blend in. Let's just come alongside people where they're at. Not, not do anything. And eventually, we'll, we'll get an opportunity to just have that conversation with them. I don't want to wear that shirt. I don't need to wear the shirt with the fish on it. Because if I wear the shirt with the fish on it, then they're just going to label me and that'll just ruin all of my... Well, really, maybe the reason why you don't want to wear that shirt is because you're afraid. I'm not saying you have to wear a shirt with a fish on it. I'm just saying. <laughs> what are your intentions? What is going on in your heart? Are you bold for Christ? Are you prepared? What a blueprint to build a church. We can't bring the message of Jesus in the midst of an evil society without receiving a reaction. There's going to be various degrees of reaction, as we know. We could offend someone, we become less popular, we could be viewed as weak or uneducated, we can lose our family. We could lose our life. 1 Peter 4, 12-19 gives us this encouragement. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted... For the name of Jesus, for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, if we barely make it in, if the road is that narrow, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Persevere. He's given us the ability to be key bearers for the kingdom. Remember that last week? The key bearers. Remember our message, save souls who are lost in sin. Picture yourself as a firefighter running into that burning building. The medical aid you have, the, the hose that you're carrying, or whatever the case may be, is the key. The key that Jesus has given you, the gospel, the gospel message that you have. It brings people out of the burning building. 
It saves people. Saves us. Trust that God knows what He is doing and He loves you and He will save you. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want to find what you're really looking for. Lose yourself. Cast off your sinful nature and put on Christ. Verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The world can't give us what we need or what we want. Um, living for wealth in this world has its consequences. All right? That's what we always want to do. Right? We want to hit the jackpot. We want to hoard it. We want to live the beautiful life, go to the Bahamas all the time and whatever. It's kind of like this. Picture yourself. It's kind of like you're, you're a career robber, bank robber. There you go. And you just hit the biggest score of your whole career. You hit the mother load. And you're trying to pack these huge bags of money out the door. And you're excited. I mean, this is it. You worked hard for this. And right when you step out of the door, the Eureka Police Department is right there to meet you. And you're going to prison for the rest of your life. It was there and it's gone. Proverbs says, There's a way that seems right to man, but its end leads to destruction. We might be denying ourselves for a while. Might be giving up things that sound like they're good. Money and wealth or whatever the case may be. Easy road. But this life is a flash in the pan. The book of James says life is a vapor. The psalmist encourages us with these words. Saying, Weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Suffering for Christ is temporary. This life is temporary. Live this life for the next life. Unashamed with boldness. Proclaim Jesus. Proclaim Jesus. Let's live like Christians in Acts chapter 2 after Pentecost when they received the Holy Spirit and they met with each other and they spent time with one another and they sold their worldly possessions and they helped one another. Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He'll repay each person according to what He has done. Judgment is coming. We will be judged by what we do, because what we do will show what we are. Our payment for following Jesus ultimately is life without suffering in death with our Savior in heaven forever and ever and ever. But I think sometimes we also need to comment then that it's also good while you're here on this earth. Right? We always look at the future. Well, it's coming. It's coming. The good stuff is coming. But can you imagine going through the suffering and everything that's going on in this world without having the Holy Spirit in your hearts? There comes peace with that. There comes satisfaction. There comes strength. There's times where He pours blessings on us. Gives us wonderful jobs. Gives us a wonderful family. 
And we live in the United States. And then, when we get to heaven, it says God's going to repay us for the works that we've done here on earth. There's going to be different degrees of payment. I don't really understand this exactly, but I get a little bit of a glimpse of this in in Revelation when it talks about martyrs. Remember what it says about martyrs? They're going to be clothed with white robes. There's a distinction made. They're going to be held in high honor. The Bible says that the world did not deserve them. So, when we get to heaven and I have my little shack, that's still great because there's no suffering there. I would like to come and hang out with you at your mansion just in case you've stored up greater works than me here on earth. So just let me on over. Your suffering and laboring for the gospel will be rewarding on earth. It's It's awesome to have the Holy Spirit living in us. And that's why we're here this morning. Because we've been touched by the Holy Spirit. We've tasted it. But here Jesus says that He will repay according to our works. Our laboring saves lives, builds the church, and it reaps rewards. Jesus tells His disciples in our last verse that there's some of them that aren't going to taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in heaven. Nobody really knows what that means. It sounds like it's talking about the second coming. sounds like there are some of the disciples that he's talking to right there that are going to still be around for the second coming, but that would seem pretty strange because there would be some pretty old disciples walking around today because we haven't had the second coming. So, we've tried to interpret it in different ways. Maybe it's talking about Pentecost. Maybe it's talking about the transfiguration, which we're going to talk about next Sunday. And it might be. It seems like that's what most people are think he's talking about. It's just a few days after our passage is when the transfiguration happens. But ultimately, we don't exactly know what's going on there. I thought this was interesting. It, it, maybe it's, it's talking about seeing Christ inwardly. We've been talking this whole time about denying self and taking on Christ. Maybe as we deny ourselves and we're putting on Christ, the Holy Spirit is giving us the power and the ability to live a Spirit-filled life, maybe in, in that sense of seeing Christ coming in His kingdom. I don't, I don't really know. What's important for us is to know that Christ is coming. And we're going to see Him in His glory. I'd like to close this sermon with Peter's sermon. In uh, 1 Peter 4, verses 1-11, through I think this little passage that we're going to read right here kind of encompasses everything that we went over this morning. If you would like to follow along, 1 Peter 4, 1-11. through Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the best for the rest of this time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks Oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves with the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's take communion.